This is HEC Media. The views and opinions expressed in the following program do not reflect the views or opinions of HEC or this station. Today we learn more about familiar stories. We visit the high heavens, the deep seas, and the land of the dead. Hi, I'm Jerry Kowarski. And I'm Bob Wilcox. Welcome to our Halloween spooktacular, Boo on the Isle Meets the Wolfman. Welcome to Two on the Isle, the podcast, produced by HEC Media in St. Louis, Missouri. Two on the Isle, the podcast, is an audio version of the televised and webcast program produced every two weeks that features a review of theater and opera productions around the St. Louis area, along with a calendar of theater due to play around the region. The regular hosts of the program, Bob Wilcox and Jerry Kowarski, have been hosting and reviewing all over town for more than 25 years on local cable and more recently online. This podcast is from episode number 513 of the program, originally broadcast on Thursday, October 25th, 2018, and features reviews of the following plays. A Doll's House, Part 2, at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis. Silent Sky at Inside Theater Company. The Last Days of Judas Iscariot at Mustard Seed Theater. The Tempest at St. Louis Shakespeare. Evil Dead the Musical at Stray Dog Theater. Disney's The Little Mermaid at Variety Theater. The Laramie Project at Clayton Community Theater, Eurydice at St. Louis University, and The Rocky Horror Show at Washington University. Now to start our reviews for this episode, here's Bob Wilcox. Playwright Lucas Snath is a bold and brave man. We've all wondered how Nora Helmer survived alone in the world after the door slam heard round the world at the end of Henry Gibson's A Doll's House. Not that it mattered to Ibsen, his play ends where he ended it. He needed nothing more. Still, he has created a strong, vivid character in Nora. She's had a shocking insight into the place of women in her society, and she has, in response, done a shocking thing. How did it work out? That's the bold and brave thing playwright Anath has done. He shows us how it worked out. In the current production at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis, we know from the moment Nora walks back in the door of the Helmer household, 15 years after she went out of it, from the stylish and expensive dress costume designer Victoria Livingston Hall has provided her, that Nora has done quite well. Her old nurse and governess, Anne-Marie, who has also been the nurse and governess of her now-grown daughter and two sons, welcomes her but has not entirely forgiven her for leaving her husband and especially her children. But as the actor Janet McTeer, who has played Nora brilliantly, observed, though Nora leaves to find out who she is, she also leaves for the children. She knows the only way to teach them to be themselves is for her to first learn how to be herself. And she has learned how to be herself. She has become a very successful writer. She writes books about women, women who have experiences much like her own, women who go their own way in the world. She takes a radical position, hoping that in 15 or 30 years, men and women will no longer feel the need to tie themselves down with the bonds of matrimony, I hear Nora making the arguments made often by George Bernard Shaw's characters, both men and women, though playwright Nath does not endow her with as much wit and brilliance of prose style as Shaw does his characters. Nora has returned because she has found herself in a situation much like her legal dilemma in A Doll's House. Husband Torvald promised 15 years ago to divorce her, and she has put her signature on legal papers thinking that, as a divorced woman, she has the right to do so. 
but good old Torvald never got that divorce, and as a married woman, Nora had no legal right to sign papers without her husband's permission. She has broken the law, and she needs Torvald to give her that divorce in order to stay out of prison. The old Nora did not know or care that she broke the law. Nora now knows the law and thinks she has not broken it. Carolyn Kozlowski's Nora is a brilliant performance, strong, wary, careful, determined, the full range, now subtle, now obvious. Michael James Reed's Torvald keeps his distance. He obviously is not forgiven, resents what she has done, does not wish to help. And when Torvald undergoes a sudden change of heart, Reed unleashes unsuspected depths of passion in Torvald. Tina Johnson gives us an Anne-Marie, who is exactly what you want in the old nurse, welcoming and disapproving, accepting and forgiving, and wanting things made right. Some have found Nath's occasional use of today's language jarring. It only pulled me out of the play when Anne-Marie dropped a few bombs. Nora meets briefly with her daughter, Emmy. Emmy is reserved and polite, not bitter about being abandoned by her mother, but perhaps she is getting back at her mother and declaring her own independence when she announces that she is engaged to be married. She will not be a pioneer in the new world her mother envisions. Scott C. Neal's set looks like a storage room with some furniture piled up in one corner, yet it is the room one enters from the outside. Now gray, it obviously had another function in happier days and now reflects their passing. The lighting is by Angie Wrightson, the sound by Rusty Wandel. More than just random speculation about Nora's fate, Hanath has created in A Doll's House Part Two a complete and fascinating drama. In the last year and a half, I've seen three local productions of Silent Sky, and my admiration for Lauren Gunderson's play keeps growing. The current staging by Inside Theatre Company is a splendid realization of a compelling script. It will introduce you to Henrietta Leavitt, a scientist in the early 20th century who ought to be better known than she is. In the opening scene, Henrietta is about to leave her home to begin working at the Harvard Observatory. A famous astronomer has offered her a position, but it turns out not to be what she expected. Henrietta is not allowed to use Harvard's refractor telescope to make observations of her own. Instead, she is assigned to a group of women referred to as computers because they compute the luminosity of stars on the observatory's photographic plates. Henrietta develops a special interest in stars whose luminosity varies over time. Eventually, she discovers a linear relationship between the brightness of these stars, called Cephids, and the interval of time over which the variation occurs. This discovery was a foundational advance it allowed astronomers to compute the distance to remote galaxies and enabled Edwin Hubble to establish that the universe is expanding. Henrietta's work might have earned her the Nobel Prize, but she had already been dead for three years when a nomination was contemplated in 1924. Gunderson makes the science readily accessible and gives vibrant personalities to all the characters. They are brought fully to life by the excellent inside cast directed by Maggie Ryan. The relationships among the characters are portrayed with remarkable intimacy and responsiveness by Gwendolyn Wadawa as Henrietta, Jennifer Thebe Quinn as her sister Margaret, Elizabeth Ann Townsend and Chrissy Steele as Henrietta's colleagues, and Alex Freeman as Henrietta's supervisor at the observatory and a possible love interest. 
A striking environment for the drama is established by the costumes by Julian King, the lighting by Rob Lippert, the sound by James Blanton, and the set by Constance Vale and Jasmine Amber of Creative Exchange Lab. I especially like the decision to vary the brightness of some of the projected stars before Henrietta discovers the importance of that variation. It was a very nice touch, and the whole play is one I don't mind seeing again. As you say, it seems to be very popular these days. And I expect it will continue to be. Judas Iscariot inspires speculation. Why did he betray Jesus? Why did he recant the betrayal? Why did he become a follower of Jesus? We really know very little about him. That leaves lots of room for speculation. Playwright Stephen Adley Garges caught the bug and wrote The Last Days of Judas Iscariot. The title may mislead. Judas appears already to be dead. A trial is being held in purgatory to determine where Judas goes from there. And the witnesses span the centuries from Satan himself to Sigmund Freud and Mother Teresa. Some of them say more than Judas does. Chris Ware's Judas spends much of the time sitting at the foot of a barren tree, perhaps the one on which he hanged himself. It is Y-shaped, two branches reaching up from the trunk, definitely not a cross. The judge has a high perch next to it where he can bang his gravel violently, paying little attention to law or decorum or to those in his court. Some witnesses also have a high perch on the other side of the tree, most of them sit in a chair at the foot of the judge's perch. The prosecutor and the defendant's attorney sit opposite them. The scenic design is Duncy Dyes. The play begins with the testimony of Judas's mother, Henrietta Iscariot. The crepuscular lighting of the scene by designer Michael Sullivan and the enveloping hood on designer Andrea Robb's costume make Henrietta a shadowy figure. She's followed in brighter light and brighter costumes by the other witnesses, St. Augustine's mother, St. Monica, St. Peter, St. Matthew, Mary Magdalena, St. Thomas, and others all having their say, sometimes comic, sometimes thoughtful, some shallow, some emotional. The fireworks erupt by the end of the first act and continue through the second act with the examination by the attorneys, especially the defense attorney, of the high priest Caiaphas, of Pontius Pilate, and of Satan. At last, we have some high dramatic conflict. Aurelia Rovensky's Caiaphas has religion for a defense. Carmen Garcia's Pontius Pilate has law and order for a defense. And as Satan, if you ever want someone to play the smoothest of dissemblers, of twisters of facts and morals, of the father of lies that may not be lies, call on Eric Dean White extending further the smoothness of that justifier of Hitler he played in the Labute One Act last summer. Courtney Bailey Parker plays a defense attorney you would want on your side should you ever need one, calm, unflappable, persistent, smart. As the prosecutor, Carl Overly Jr. plays it big and mostly rightly for laughs with lots of comic energy. Chandler Spradling also goes over the top as the judge. In multiple roles, Ray Davis, Felice Skye, Chelsea Kenning, Jesse Munoz, and Rachel Tibbetts each evoke clearly defined individuals. Laura Skroska designed props and Zoe Sullivan sound. Graham Emmons played Butch Honeywell, foreman of the jury, someone of our time like us and the play ends on a confessional speech he makes. I'm not quite sure why, and despite the firm, intelligent control of director Adam Flores, that speech, like others, seems like fragments of a play, fascinating as each speech is, and as the play is, 
And I wonder when it will all come together. Yeah, I, we, we responded very much the same way, and I appreciated how you enlightened some parts of this for me. Oh, good. All right. You can follow All Things Two on the Isle on Facebook by searching for Two on the Isle and liking the page. And you can be the first to see the reviews on YouTube by subscribing to the Two on the Isle channel and checking the notification bell. Again, you can find us on Facebook and on YouTube by searching for Two on the Isle. One of the most encouraging trends in staging Shakespeare is that women are now being cast in parts originally written for men. In St. Louis Shakespeare's recent production of The Tempest, the company's founder, Donna Northcott, played the main character whose name was changed from Prospero to Prospera. She is still the deposed ruler of Millen, living in exile and studying magic on a remote island, where her lonely companions are her daughter Miranda, a spirit of light named Ariel, and the island's original inhabitant, Caliban, the misshapen offspring of a witch. When the conspirators who deposed Prospera sail near her island, she conjures up a storm that drives their ship aground, enabling Prospera to settle old scores and secure her daughter's future. Northcott was authoritarian when she had to be, but her physical acting created an unusually intimate connection between Prospera and her child. Erica Flowers Roberts as Miranda was a worthy partner for Northcott in establishing the strong mother-daughter relationship. Director Patrick Seiler wisely cast women as the other rulers, Teresa Doggett as Prospera's sister Antonia, who usurped the throne of Milan, and Laura S. Cairo as Alonza, ruler of Naples. Both were fully convincing. So is Charles Winning as Sebastian, Alonza's brother, and Antonia's co-conspirator on the island. Carl Hawkins was an appropriately delicate Ariel, while Dustin S. Massey was an appropriately lumbering Caliban. Massey was part of an entertaining comic trio with Jeff Lewis as Stefano and Anthony Winninger's Trinkolo. Ian Carlson as Ferdinand and Dave Houghton as Gonzalo were admirable contributors. Percussionist David A. N. Jackson created an enthralling live soundscape. He received able assistance during the storm, the banquet, and the mask from ensemble members Leah Kamova, Peyton Gillum, Talicha Noah, and Patience Davis. Michelle Friedman Seiler provided fine period costumes. Joseph Clapper lit the stage effectively. Kira Bishop Sanford designed a flexible set. The backdrop worked nicely in the discovery scene at the end. I'm glad that Northcott, Cairo, and Doggett had a chance to tackle their roles and that I was able to see them in parts that no longer have to be reserved for men. Yes, and I thought it was very helpful that the costumes were Elizabethan so that both uh, Cairo and Doggett, who were playing queens, uh, reminded me of Queen Elizabeth. So there were women queens in Shakespeare's day. Very true. We all know the drill. Take Sam Raimi's Evil Dead horror movies, turn them into a musical with a book, music, and lyrics by George Reinblatt, Frank Cipolla, Melissa Morris, and Christopher Bond. Give it to director Justin Bean, music director Jennifer Buchheit, and choreographer Sam Gage, plus assorted actors, designers, and technicians to put it all on the stray dog stage. And you have a gentle, refined evening of theater somewhere else. 
Here we have those five college kids off for a weekend in a remote cabin, of course, which harbors an ancient book of the dead, of course, with mysterious formulas that the kids fiddle with, of course, which releases the resident Kandarian demons, DBA the Evil Dead, of course, who turn the kids one by one into Kandarian demons themselves. Obviously, cast, crew, and audience all have their tongues firmly in their cheeks. But how far in? Too far and you lose the thrill. Not far enough and you lose the laughs. Scenic designer Josh Smith, costume designer Eileen Engel, lighting designer Tyler Dino, and makeup designer Sarah Castelli all provide the needed landmarks of the horror film. The menacing trees outside the rambling rustic cabin, the chainsaw attacking the demonic hand which then roams about the room, the possessed girlfriend whose severed head now rests on a shelf, all cleverly and obviously fake but with resonance. The actors are variously successful in getting the tongue in the right place. Kristen Ringhausen has lots of comic energy as the sister of the leader of the group and the first to be seized by demons. Riley Dunn keeps the right degree of control as Ash, the leader who has set it all up. Don Schmid plays his sweet girlfriend. Stephen Henley, his crude buddy. Janelle Gilrath, his sexpot date. Maria Bartolotti shows up as the daughter of the cabin's owner. Corey Frain as her meek boyfriend, Josh Douglas as the local country bumpkin, and hero of the splatter zone as he moves down the road, spraying them with fake blood, and Kevin O'Brien as the ghostly owner of the cabin and of the Book of the Dead. It is what it is, and you know if Evil Dead the Musical is what you want. Well, Bob, I managed to get my hands on that Kandarian Book of the Dead you mentioned. Would you like to hear some of it? I would, but first let's hear some music from this show. Since we last reviewed Variety Children's Theater, it has dropped its middle name. It's now just Variety Theater. The company still specializes in shows that appeal to young audiences, and it still has a lot of kids in its cast, including kids served by Variety, the charity that has been helping children with disabilities reach their full potential for eight decades. But Variety's shows are not just for children. This year's staging of Disney's The Little Mermaid was another triumph. Once again, director-choreographer Lara Teeter demonstrated his mastery of integrating performers of varying abilities into a seamlessly entertaining whole. Seeing what the Variety Kids accomplish working besides top professionals both on stage and off is a uniquely powerful demonstration of why Variety's work is so valuable. Heading this year's show was Terrence Mann, a luminary on Broadway, where he originated the roles of Inspector Javert and Les Mis in The Beast and Beauty and the Beast. In The Little Mermaid, Mann was a commanding presence as the title character's father, King Triton. His daughter Ariel, the mermaid who risks all for the love of a human prince, was played by native St. Louis and Berkeley going. We watched her grow up in 12 parts at the Muni, and it was a joy to see what a splendid performer she has become. As Prince Eric David Bryant Johnson was a suitor worthy of going Zariel, 
His mentor, Grimsby, was ideally caring in Alan Knowles' portrayal. As Sebastian the Crab, Michael Hawkins nailed both of his great numbers, Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl. Drew Humphrey captured the zany appeal of Scuttle the Seagull. As Ursula the Sea Witch, Joy Boland demonstrated once again that she has comedic gifts that match her beautiful voice. Her able and evil minions were Brandon Fink as Flotsam and Mason Kelso as Jetsam. As Ariel's confidant flounder, young Ian Knowlton, proved that he belonged in the august company of this excellent cast. Flying by Foy provided striking underwater swimming scenes that were executed with aplomb by stunt doubles Cecily Dowd for Ariel and Dustin Crumbaugh for Eric. The show sounded great thanks to all the singers, the orchestra under music director Mark Chapman, and the sound design by Rusty Wandel. The show looked great thanks to the scenic design by Duncey Dye, the lighting by Nathan Shure, and the costumes by Kansas City Costume. If this show were still running, I would urge you to see it. But if I have sparked your interest in seeing next year's show from Variety Theater, my mission has been accomplished. Yes, it has indeed. Let's hear some of that music now. If you're on Twitter and Instagram, you can find us there too. You can follow us on Twitter at Two on the Isle and be among the first to find out about our uploaded reviews to YouTube and any other special news that we have to announce. Plus, on Instagram, you can see some sneak peeks and the shows we've just gotten video for before the next episode, and you can watch all of the reviews every two weeks on our Instagram TV feed when you follow us. Again, follow us on Twitter and Instagram by looking for Two on the Isle, one word, and watch our reviews on IGTV in the section of our bio on Instagram. The Laramie Project could be called a docudrama, but it has very little drama. The drama was there in the killing of Matthew Shepard because he was gay, and in some of the reactions of the people of Laramie, Wyoming, where it happened, where the two killers were tried and convicted. What we have in the Laramie Project is mostly those reactions. A New York theater company, Tectonic Theater Project, led by Moises Kaufman, made six trips to Laramie to interview members of the community. Those interviews, sometimes with the interviewer, sometimes without, are what we see on the stage. It is all revealing of the reactions to the horrible killing, with insights into the people who are speaking, but the dramatic temperature remains pretty low. At the Clayton Community Theater, director Jim Danning kept it simple with an occasional table and chair, sometimes actors just facing us and talking to us. John J.T. Taylor designed projected slides of Laramie scenes. Nathan Schrader illuminated the proceedings. Julie Smalley's coordinated costumes. Gene Rauscher composed music. The actors generally took on their various characters with clarity and conviction, if limited in depth by the script, and a couple had major projection problems. 
I've no way of linking actors and characters, but the actors were Jack Abels, Jonathan Duffy, Charles, Kelly Hunter, Jack Jansen, Mark Lull, Tim Neglin, Denny Patterson, Elizabeth Reed Penny, Tina Renard, Lucy Sappington, Robert Joseph Tierney, and Chrissy Watkins. The Laramie Project could be a radio report or a book. I'm not sure it needs the stage. Oh, I think you're right about that. And uh, as you say, it's hard to review this because attaching a particular performer to a performance is really hard. Yes, it is. It is. Sarah Rule's Eurydice retells the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice in a modern setting from her point of view. The internal logic of Rule's imaginative script emerged with clarity in the recent production at St. Louis University thanks to the sharpness of the characterizations and the coherence of Tom Martin's direction. In the myth, the great musician Orpheus was so grief-stricken by the death of his wife that he'd send her to the underworld in the hope of bringing her back. He succeeded in persuading the king of the underworld to allow Eurydice to return to life on earth, but there was a catch. Orpheus was forbidden from looking back at Eurydice until they reached the surface. The temptation to look back was too great for Orpheus to resist, and Eurydice was lost to him forever. In Rule's version, Eurydice is lured away from her wedding reception by a nasty, interesting man who says he has a letter from her dead father. He really does. We saw the letter being written in the underworld. Unlike most spirits there, Eurydice's father has retained his memory. After Eurydice dies in a fall from the nasty, interesting man's high-rise, her father finds her in the underworld and cares for her with unstinting tenderness. Her memories are eventually restored, and so is their loving relationship. When Orpheus comes to the underworld to reclaim Eurydice, she is torn between her love for him and her love for her father. Her choices result in an ending that is more tragic than the one in the original myth. The depth of the character's feelings was conveyed vividly at SLU. Hallie Patterson captured the full depth of Eurydice's inner conflict. Blake Howard made her father the most solicitous of parents, and Jacob Halton made Orpheus the most adoring of husbands. Valen Piotrowski was appropriately creepy in differing ways as both the nasty, interesting man and the bewilderingly juvenile lord of the underworld. Three Stones in the Underworld functions a kind of Greek chorus. Their gloom and irritability were delightful in the performances by Haley Guttrich as the small stone, Reed McLean as the big stone, and Laurel Button as the loud stone. There were costumes with admirable wit by Lou Bird, as were the other characters. Dan Goderman's set, David LaRose's lighting, Noah Weisbrod's video, and Aaron Johnson's music and sound design established a flexible space and an evocative atmosphere worthy of Rule's fascinating play. Yeah, it is fascinating. I thought this was maybe the clearest production of it that I've seen. And I loved the way the, the uh, stones were treated also. They were, they were a hoot. After several viewings of the Rocky Horror Show, I am finally beginning to get a grip on what's happening. <laughs> not that that matters much. It's not a well-made play. When creator of the book, music, and lyrics Richard O'Brien wants to veer off on some tangent to pay tribute to another schlock feature of the science fiction and horror films in the mid-20th century, he did so. As a result, we happily follow some illogical internal logic of the Rocky Horror plot, 
accepting it for what it is and as the supporting scaffolding for those familiar lines and songs. There they all are in the current production from the Performing Arts Department of Washington University. And the role of the audience that began to develop at the midnight showings of the film is encouraged at the Edison Theater. That works pretty well in small doses. But when I was there, more extended comments seemed mostly to come from a couple of plants in the audience. On the stage, all is well, thanks to the direction of William Whitaker, who always keys in to an imaginative and effective way to bring a script to life. Music director Henry Palkus leads the five-piece combo that supports the confident singing of the cast. Dominique Reagularos' costumes are, as expected, with some witty original touches, like Stephanie Nelson Pondrum's scenic design, enhanced with Sean Savoy's projections, Benjamin Gaffney's lighting, and Casey Hunter's sound. Sabrina Odigi's Usherette stylishly opens and closes the show with a sharp Eudora and Yagafu taking over the narration. Nathan Wetter's Brad and Sarah James's Janet are all-American innocents cast upon an alien shore where Brandon Crisco's Frankenfurter presides in his high camp heaven. Supported by Kelly Abel's butler, Riffraff, Madeline Quiraz's Maid Magenta, and Emma Thorpe's Groupie Columbia. Max Scheitman's Rocky flexes his muscle poses, Cameron Bryant has exuberant last moments as the doomed Eddie, and Stephen Rao's Dr. Scott usually can control his right arm. The seven phantoms provide fine vocal and visual backup. And so we have done the time warp again and will yet again, no doubt. I'm sure, and uh, this is the most crowded I've ever seen the Edison Theater, so uh, they obviously chose well this Something time. Something was done right, yes. But listen to the, listen to the music. Here's the calendar for theater events around the St. Louis area for October and November of 2018. The Dinner Detective at Hotel Lumiere at the Arch Murder Mystery Dinner Show will run through April 27th in 2019. Adam's Family Affair at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theater will run through October 28th. Dead Like Me at the Lemp Mansion Comedy Mystery Dinner Theater runs through November 3rd. A Doll's House Part 2 runs at the Rep through November 4th. The Last Days of Judas Iscariot at Mustard Seed Theater through October 28th. Evil Dead the Musical plays at Stray Dog Theater through October 27th. Silent Sky is at Inside Theater Company and it runs through November 4th. The Rocky Horror Show is at Washington University and it runs through October 28th. The play Admissions is at The Rep through October 11th. Darius de Haas, a Leonard Bernstein thing, is at The Cabaret Project through October 25th. Whither Should I Fly at Theater Nuevo through November 10th. Macbeth, Come Like Shadows is at Rebel and Misfits through November 10th. Faith Prince at The Presenter's Dolan is on October 26th and 27th. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at the Alton Little Theater in Alton, Illinois runs through November 4th. 
The Headless Hessian of Sleepy Hollow and Other American Horror Stories runs at the Florist and Fine Arts Council on October 26th. Into the Breaches is mounted by Shakespeare Festival St. Louis from October 28th through November 24th. Jimmy Webb will be on by the presenters Dolan on October 28th. Dr. Faustus will be at SAIT from October 31st through November 17th. Bob Gurchin, Joe Cocker, and Never Forget will be mounted by the presenters Dolan on November 1st. Mary Poppins will be at Lindenwood University from November 1st through the 3rd. A Raisin in the Sun will be mounted by Hawthorne players from November 2nd through the 11th. Lord Arthur Savile's Crimes will be mounted by Kirkwood Theatre Guild from November 2nd through November 11th. Arsenic and Old Lace will be mounted by the Theatre Guild of Webster Groves from November 2nd through the 11th. Lacajo Fall will be mounted by Overdue Theatre Company from November 2nd through the 11th. Cary St. Louis will be by the presenters Dolan on November 2nd and 3rd. And Annie the Musical will be by Act Two Theatre in St. Peter's from November 2nd through the 11th. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest will be mounted by O'Fallon Theatre Works in O'Fallon, Missouri from the 2nd through the 11th of November. A Christmas Slaying at the Bissell Mansion Murder Mystery Dinner Theatre will start on November 2nd and end on December 29th. The Gospel at Colonius will be a benefit by the Black Rep on November 3rd. Paula Mary Soft Dean about the journey will be at the Monocle on November 3rd. Cinderbottom will be at Edie's Fairy Tale Theater on November 3rd. And Aladdin will be at the Fox Theater from November 7th through the 25th. The musical Chicago will be at Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville from November 7th through the 11th. Away in a Basement, a church basement ladies Christmas will be at Playhouse at Westport Plaza from November 8th through January 6th. And Carol Burnett will be in town at the Stiefel Theater on November 8th. Twelfth Night will be mounted by Florissant Valley Community College from November 8th through the 11th. Frost Nixon will be in Lebanon, Illinois at the Looking Glass Playhouse from November 8th through the 18th. And finally, Lonnie McFadden will be mounted by the presenters Dolan on November 8th. We'll be watching some of these productions from our two seats on the aisle. And we'll be watching the mail and the email for your thoughts on theater in this program and for items for the calendar. Send them to Two on the Aisle, HEC Media, 3221 McKelvey Road, Bridgeton, Missouri, 63044, or by email to TOTA at HECTV.org. The producer for Two on the Aisle was Bob Wilcox and the associate producer, Jerry Kowarski. HEC Media producer is Paul Langdon. Our hosts this week were Jerry Kowarski and Bob Wilcox. The TV director was Rick Rebelke. Our program editor was Jerry Kowarski. And the segment editors and videography were by Carrie Marks, Paul Langdon, Ben Smith, and Rod Milam. The audio was by Paul Langdon. And studio cameras were by Carrie Marks and Ben Smith. The set and lighting were also by Paul Langdon, Carrie Marks, Ben Smith, and Blake Abrams. Blake Abrams also did the teleprompter. Our theme music was by Daniel McGowan. HEC technical support is by Jane Ballou. And production associate, social media broadcaster, podcast producer, and podcast host is Rod Milan. And Two on the Isle was made possible with the support from the Regional Arts Commission of St. Louis. Don't forget that you can find all things Two on the Isle online on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Just go to each social media platform, search for Two on the Isle, 
and like, subscribe, and follow us there. Thanks for downloading the Two on the Owl podcast. We'll see you next time. This is an HEC Media podcast.